Alright everybody, welcome back to Didactic Mind. This is your host, Didact speaking, as always. And this is Didactic Mind, episode 45, from 4GW to 0GW. Very warm welcome, as always, to all of my regular readers. Very warm welcome to all of my SoundCloud subscribers. Very warm welcome to anybody uh, listening in who uh, is not part of that group, if you are not. Uh, please hit the subscribe button if you're listening for the first time and make sure that you never ever miss a new upload or uh, podcast. Um, <clears throat> plenty of good content coming your way over the coming months and weeks and months. Uh, got a few announcements to make as always. Um, the website superbshaving.com, that's where you can go if you want to support my work. If you want to purchase uh, traditional wet shaving products, they make tremendous gifts. They make uh, for you know, a special man in your life, whether it's your dad, your older brother, your son, uh, should you be at that stage. God bless you if you are. Um, they are the, the, the point of traditional wet shaving is that you get away from wasting money on useless, crappy, uh, lightweight, pathetic, you know, just cheap um, feeling and cheap uh, using cartridge razors. Um, it's not very good English, I admit, but you, you get the point. I mean, the, the standard method of uh, normal shaving is really quite ugly. It's not, a, it's not a fun way to shave. Whereas if you go back to old school traditional shaving, the way your granddad used to shave, then the nobility and the purpose and the art the artistry, the artisanship of shaving comes back into play in as part of your daily routine. And I highly recommend using a uh, classic uh, safety razor and uh, proper razor blades and proper shaving soap and a proper um, shaving brush. And you can find my opinions about all things shaving related at that website. So go check it out. Uh, the new website is uh, fully operational, it's fully up and running, I just haven't had much time to work on it. Um, if I sound a bit tired today, uh, do forgive me, I realize the podcast is late, there's just been uh, a lot of uh, stuff going on which I don't want to get into, um, rather painful, but uh, it is what it is, you know, you just uh, you just gotta, um, just gotta fight your way through it. So... Um, the point, uh, oh, uh, the other thing is the Limitless Living uh, package. That is available until midnight tonight, okay? Uh, Kyle Trouble, my friend Kyle Trouble, and I have put together a literally an A to Z roadmap, a blueprint showing you exactly how to get away from a decrepit and dying Western civilization to greener pastures. Um, I was responsible for the bulk of the actual lesson content. Kyle is responsible for the marketing and setup and he's added a whole bunch of bonus content himself. Uh, he's added a whole bunch of his own affiliate links and ideas uh, and tricks and, um, and, and courses into the package. So um, you are in for a real treat if you buy it. And if you miss the pre-sale, well, I'm sorry, you are SOL because the pre-sale was for a great price. It was for $77 and you got everything, uh, all included. The current price is more like $197, and that's for just the course. If you want um, additional services, believe me, they're worth it because you get direct access to Kyle and to me, 
and we will walk you through your journey. We will hold your hand every step of the way. We're going to help you out in making this um, this this change in your life a reality. But uh, if you want the full service package, I mean that's like seventeen hundred eighteen hundred dollars. And if you want some something somewhere in between where you do get uh, consulting services from Kyle and me, then that's about five hundred dollars. So. I know that's, uh, that sounds like a lot, but trust me, when you see the amount of content involved and when you see how much uh, is going to be in the actual, um, the actual layout that you get, uh, the actual, what's it called, the, um, the course content, the, the curriculum, I think uh, you are going to be very, very pleasantly surprised. I think you're going to feel that it's tremendous value for money, that you're actually getting uh, honestly, you're getting um, an incredible package for cheap. So uh, go check it out. It is at kyletrouble.com slash limitlessliving. Uh, link will be in the description box. And I will have all of that uh, information up and ready for you. So having gone through all of that, uh, limitless-living, uh, having gone through all of that, uh, what is the point of today's podcast? Well, I am sure all of you have been paying attention to the uh, ongoing violence in America's city streets. In particular, the um, the riots in Kenosha, Wisconsin, recently, and the um, <clears throat> the killing of a Trump supporter in, I think it was Portland. Uh, Trump supporter killed in Seattle. Is it Portland? I believe it was. Uh, he was shot in Portland. Yeah, uh, he was shot and killed in Portland by um, a group of Antifa militants. Now, the point of today's podcast is to make it very plain to a large number of Americans, and Westerners who are listening to this, but Americans primarily, that their expectations of the coming civil war are totally unrealistic. Now, what do I mean by that? If you look at the um, the division in opinion between the radical loony left, um, the <clears throat> the fast disappearing moderate center, and the hardcore right, which is becoming more and more strident every day and is fighting back, who makes up the right? Well, a lot of them are so-called conservatives. Conservatives, by their very nature, by the de very definition of their philosophy, and you will notice I use the third-person pronoun, I am not a conservative. I don't pretend to be a conservative. I may have called myself a conservative or of conservative leanings for years, uh, up until about, I don't know, 2014, 2015. But of late, certainly for the last four or five years, I, am, I have not been conservative in any way, shape, or form. I have been very much of the hard right, and I am proud to be of the hard right. Um, <clears throat> what does conservatism mean? Conservatism is not a an ideology, it is not a doctrine, it is not a dogma. Conservatism is essentially a set of moral philosophies um, stitched together in, in, a, in a patchwork quilt. If you look at uh, Russell Kirk's classic essay, about the Ten Pillars of Conservatism, what you will find very quickly is that there is no reference to 
any sort of hill to die on. It doesn't exist. Conservatism, conservatism is a very wishy-washy grab bag of moral principles. But it doesn't draw any lines in the sand. Conservatism doesn't say anything about defending a nation, for instance. If you look through his, uh, if you look through Kirk's ten principles, it does not say, they do not say, conservatives stand in defense of a nation. It doesn't say that. What it says is, conservatives stand in defense of, believe in, um, community. It doesn't say, stand in defense of. It says, believe in community. What does that mean? What is a community? Can people come in and out of that community as they will, as they wish? What is the point of a community? Who defines the community? Um, a nation is very clearly understood. Nation, as I have said many, many times before, and this is not my formulation, this comes from our beloved and dreaded Supreme Dark Lord, peace be unto him, Vox Dei. A nation, the very term, is rooted in the Latin, or actually the Italian noun, which comes from the Latin, natio. What does natio mean? Or natio, uh, depending on how you pronounce it in Italian. Natio means um, birth, literally. So a nation is defined by birth. Originally, that was always the case. The Romans defined Roman citizenship based on birthright. You had to be descended from Roman parentage, from freeborn Romans who could trace their lineage back you know, through centuries and centuries and who were recognizably Roman. They were from the seven tribes of Rome. What is a nation? A nation is a group of people bound together by ties of blood, meaning ethnicity, meaning race as well. I know nobody wants to hear the R word. Uh, conservatives shy away from it, like, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a cross to a vampire. Oh, we can't mention race. We can't talk about race. No, you bloody well can talk about race. Uh, race is a critical, integral factor of what makes up a nation. If you don't believe me, um, just ask every other non-white nation out there. They all talk about race as a founding um, part, foundational part of their identity. So, common ties of blood, race and ethnicity, common ties of language, common ties of culture, common ties of history, and common ties of faith. Okay? These five things, they bind a nation together. Race, language, culture, uh, history, religion, or faith. Okay. Um, when you have all five working in concert with each other, and they, there is a, there's considerable overlap between them. By the way, if you look at India, for instance, India is uh, like India has no cultural heritage in common, none whatsoever, other than maybe Sanskrit. Sanskrit, uh, the 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 scripts of various uh, Indian languages are rooted in Sanskrit, especially Hindi. Um, India does not have race in common. I mean, I was talking to a, a, a reader of mine, actually, recently. We had a long, long chat, and uh, he really needed somebody to talk to, and I was happy to provide that um, that, that, that sounding board, that voice um, of, of help and assistance. And he was really curious about what India is like. And um, I told him that, because he's, uh, he's from uh, South Africa, and... Um, I'm not giving anything away about him, but he's from South Africa, and he was just curious about what what India is like. And I told him, I, I told him about um, 
why India is the way it is. And I told him in part it's because there's very little genetic admixture and there hasn't been for about 1500 years. And that's true. You can go look up the genetics. You can look up the archaeogenetics um, of India yourself. Uh, for about 1500 years, the caste system has pretty much frozen genetic mixing in India in place. It doesn't really happen on a macro scale. Um, so India doesn't really have race in common because there are so many, you know, there, there are these stratified races, stratified castes in place. India does have a shared history in common. India does have um, a shared culture in common. Hinduism uh, is part of the culture, and then that leads on to religion. Hinduism is the majority religion of India, and whether they're from the north or the south, Hindus have that in common. It's a very powerful binding force. So anyway, conservatives don't have this understanding. They don't realize that the nation is the fundamental building block. Because they don't have anything to fall back upon, because they don't stand for Christianity, they don't stand for Jesus, for the cross, um, they have no line in the sand. Now, don't mistake me. Uh, I'm well aware that there are a number of conservatives who would listen to this podcast and be outraged. They'd be like, what the hell are you talking about, Didac? Um, we are hardcore Christians. We are evangelicals. We, uh, we, we worship God. We worship God, the Father of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. What are you on about? You know, you, you're totally off base. Let me be very clear. That's not, I'm not saying that conservatives are not religious. That's not what I said. What I said was, religion is not one of the foundational principles of conservatism. Okay? You don't believe me? Go look up Kirk's essay. That's all you have to do. I'm not making this crap up. The ten principles of the conservative mind, or whatever it's called, um, you can go look it up. It's all right there. Conservatives believe in a natural moral order. That's pretty much all he had to say about it. So the result is that conservatives essentially essentially end up adopting whatever the left wants about 20 years too late. Um, conservatives keep saying, oh, yeah, you know, you can't go farther than this. And if you go farther than this, we're going to react. And then the left goes farther and nobody ever reacts. And then conservatives say, oh, but you can't go farther than this. And then the left always goes. Um, you see it time after time after time after time after time. It's so tiresome to watch. Uh whether it is no-fault divorce, who one of the great um, icons of the conservative movement, St. Ronald Magnus of the Right, Ronald Reagan himself, uh, the Gipper, the Duke, the, the legend, uh, Dutch, um, he was the one who signed in no-fault divorce into law in California. Ronald Reagan was the one who signed into law an abortion law in California. This is the same man, I mean, he he expressed deep regret for it later on. He said it was the worst mistake he'd ever made uh, as governor, and I agree with him. It was definitely one of the worst. Um, conservatives don't have anything to fall back upon. They have no foundation stone. They have no line in the sand that they can say, if you cross this, we're going to start shooting. The alt-right, or the hard right, if you want to call us that, um, I, I call us the hard right. The alt-right has a number of very negative connotations at this point. It's a very bad rhetoric to call ourselves the alt-right. But the hard right is very different. We stand for the principles of the West. 
Greco-Roman philosophy, Christian morality, do not waste my time, do not waste anybody's time talking shit about Judeo-Christ. If you, if anybody starts talking about Judeo-Christ in the comments, uh, either on my blog or here on SoundCloud, they're going to get royally slapped. Um, I will have, I will take great pleasure in destroying anyone who brings up Judeo-Christianity. It's bullshit. So don't waste my time. Um, <clears throat> and the European nations. So the West is defined by these three pillars. The hard right recognizes these and stands in defense of them, which is good. Conservatives don't know yet what they stand for, but they're beginning to realize that because they don't have anything to stand for, they're getting their asses kicked. However, most conservatives in suburban USA are still clinging to the delusion, frankly, that when Antifa comes knocking in rural suburbia, or in the rural areas and in suburbia, and even in some of the bigger cities, uh, they are going to get their asses handed to them. Now, there's some evidence to support that, actually. Um, a couple of years ago, there was a, uh, a clash between Antifa and uh, some uh, hard-right supporters uh, who were there to stare them down, you know, big, big burly, muscly guys, bikers, basically, who, uh, who were there. Um, and, of course, uh, Antifa tried to crash the Sturgis rally... <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, uh, was that a big mistake. Uh, can you imagine a bunch of um, BLM activists, Black Looming Menace activists, and panty fags uh, going up against a few thousand bikers? Um, I'm, I'm surprised nobody got his teeth smashed in. But uh, at any rate, the, the conservative people out there in sort of the red state and red county areas keep saying if they come to get us they're going to get shot because we have all the guns we have all the ammo you're going to get your ass kicked so don't don't even bother and you see a lot of this particularly on um, boomer blogs uh, kim dutois i don't want to pick on him because i actually like his writing a lot uh but he's a great example of this where he's he's constantly posting stuff up about how you know, guys like me, we're down at the range, we're practicing, we're, we can't wait for you guys to come over and start trying to burn down Plano, Texas, because you're going to get your asses shot off. Uh, as if it's going to be that easy. As if it's just a matter of individuals showing up with their rifles and lighting up a bunch of um, BLM activists and Antifa squads and just, uh, you know, let, letting the streets run red with blood. Um and that is, that is what the, 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 the second civil war is going to be like, by the way. It's going to be bloody and horrific on a scale that you guys can't imagine. I mean, most of you have never seen true civil unrest. I have. I've seen a glimpse of it. I've seen what it's like when a country completely loses its cohesion and buckles under the strain of massive protests. I mean, countrywide protests, but primarily concentrated in the capital city. Um, I was there in 1998 when um, Suharto's government fell in Indonesia. I was a little kid at the time. So my memories of things are probably a bit sanitized uh, because I was very heavily protected by my parents and by the school from understanding what was really going on. Uh, but I've seen what happens and I've seen how effective a, an insurgent force can be against established authority. Now, those of you from red states who are saying they're going to get their asses beat if they come over here, you all need to wake up. Because 
the 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 guy who was killed over in um, Portland the other day. Uh, what was his name? The Jay Bishop was the one. It was his his real name is Aaron Danielson. He was gunned down in the streets of Portland um, a few you know a few weeks ago. If you look at the video of what happened, this was not accidental. This was a planned assassination. Antifa and BLM are very well funded, very well organized, very well trained. Do not, I beg you, my friends, I beg you, on the right, in the USA, do not underestimate these people. You are going to get into a shooting war with these people sooner or later. It's going to happen. So do not make the mistake of thinking that these guys are just a bunch of disorganized losers in a rabble, in a mob, with no discipline. This is not the case. These people are getting serious training and serious funding. And if you have any hope of defeating them, if you're going to have any hope of fighting back against them, you need to stop with this lone wolf shit that you guys all have in your heads, and you need to focus on tactics, teamwork, strategy. You need to focus on actually the three physical levels of war, uh, tactical, operational, and strategic, and the three um, philosophical levels of war, um, physical, mental, and moral. Now, what am I talking about here? I'm talking about a doctrine called fourth generation warfare, which is a a collection of ideas that comes from various military thinkers. Um, most prominent among them, m the eminent military historian, perhaps the greatest military historian alive today, uh, the Israeli Martin Van Creveld, for whom I have immense respect. Uh, I've read many of his, well, many, I've read several of his books. Uh, some are better than others, but uh, his, his work on military strategy is phenomenal. It, it really, it's a uh, it's absolutely incredible, and particularly his history of Israel, the land of blood and honey. Uh, I have read The Transformation of War, Land of Blood and Honey, uh, The Privileged Sex, Equality, The Impossible Quest, and uh, I could have sworn there was one more. I'm reading Hitler in Hell very sporadically. It's not a, uh, it's not a fun book to read. Uh, but there are like, a couple of others that I've read. Um, I've forgotten which ones they were, what they're called. But anyway... Martin Van Creveld and William S. Lind, who is responsible for coining this idea of fourth-generation warfare. Now, uh, it's not just William S. Lind who, who came up with the term, I mean, uh, sorry, with, with the doctrine. But he builds on the work of uh, Colonel Thomas X. Hams. Um, there's, a, he, there's, a, there's, a book of, there's a set of seven books that uh, William Lind recommends as like the primer of uh, modern fourth generation warfare and the, 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 the four generations of modern, modern warfare. There is in fact a, um, a, uh, a lecture that he gave. Uh, he has been invited to speak at the U.S. Marine Corps uh, Research Center in, I think, Quantico, is it? Uh, forgive me if there are any of Uncle Sam's misguided children listening. Um, firstly, forgive me if I got the location wrong. Secondly, Semper Fi. Thirdly, um, thank you from the bottom of my heart for uh, your service and for your patronage uh, here on the podcast. Uh, I love you guys. I love listening to you tell your stories. Um, I revere your your traditions and your code. And um, I 
I, I take it as a very, very personal honor that several of you listen to what I have to say, that you read what I write. So um, really, uh, sincerely, thank you so much um, for, for stopping by and for commenting. But um, William Lind gives, has given a lecture repeatedly at, um, for the Marines. Uh, where he talks about these four generations of warfare. And his ideas were so seminal and so critical that uh, two different Marine commandants incorporated his ideas into their training doctrines. I forget if it was, uh, I'm pretty sure it was General Al Gray, who uh, ordered a rewrite of the Marine Corps uh, tactical manual. And it's called, um, uh, what is it called? Uh, Fleet Marine Force... Um, Fleet Marine Force Manual 1, uh, you know, strategy, I think it was called. And it is literally the foundational book of all tactical and strategic doctrine for the U.S. Marines. It incorporates many of the ideas that William Lind and others talk about. Now, what are those ideas? Essentially, if you, I mean, I'll link to Bill Lind's um, uh, lecture notes, the, the actual lecture transcript, which is available for purchase on Amazon in the, uh, in the description box. And I'll also link to his excellent novel, Victoria. It's a fictional book. It's a fiction book, um, and it, <clears throat> it predicts the future of the USA applying the paradigm of fourth-generation warfare. Phenomenal book. Highly recommended. Uh, so, what are the four generations of modern warfare, or the four generations of warfare? The first generation is massed infantry tactics, and this is how war has been fought for about 1,500, more than that, for about, yeah, since there was a concept of warfare, pretty much. Um, essentially, what you have is massed infantry formations smashing into each other. That is the Western way of war. I mean, we're talking hoplite warfare. We're talking legionary warfare. We're talking the Spanish tercios. We're talking um, pretty much every infantry formation up until the advent of a certain Gustavus Adolphus uh, on the battlefield. <clears throat> what does this mean? Well, basically, it means that warfare consisted of two groups of men smashing into each other with cavalry as support and so on and so forth. But it was all, it was all kind of head-on collisions, uh, and all you would do would, would be to try to turn flanks and outflank and and that was the extent of the maneuvering it wasn't rapid feints and movements and and uh maneuvers and anything like that it was just ultimately it was just brute force tactics it was as victor davis hansen calls it in the western way of war orthismos pushing you have two forces hitting each other really hard and pushing back and forth and that's warfare for most of human history then along comes gunpowder and cannons. And this changes the face of warfare completely. No longer do massed infantry formations make sense because they're just going to get mowed down by artillery and gunfire. Uh, and increasingly, as war becomes mechanized, you see this over the last uh, 500 or so years, from about 1500 to 2000 AD, uh, 1900 AD, so uh, 400 years. So now artillery comes into play. And all of a sudden, or not suddenly, but gradually, the, the massed infantry formation becomes outdated. Now what becomes the standard of warfare is 
artillery barrages that decimate the existing infantry, wipe out any uh, hardcore resistance, and then the infantry goes in and occupies the territory. Um, that is the second generation. The, the, the entire philosophy behind it is the artillery invades, the infantry occupies. That, that is the standard definition of warfare for just about every military today, including, by the way, the U.S. Army. Uh, the U.S. Army still sticks to tactical doctrines that date back to, like, the French uh, way of fighting in World War I, which in turn owes its existence to earlier doctrines from, believe it or not, the American uh, War Between the States. Um, General Robert Longstreet uh, understood what was coming in Europe long before it ever happened because he'd seen it happen in the killing fields of Gettysburg and um, other various really horrific battles that uh, the, the, the Confederacy fought against the Union. Now, that was the way of war up until about 1938. What changed? What, what, what defined the third generation? Well, to jump to the third generation, you actually have to jump back in time to 1806. Uh, 1805, 1806, around about that time. What happened then? Uh, the twin battles of Jena and Auerstedt, um, which is where the Prussians absolutely got their asses handed to them by a certain Napoleon Bonaparte. Uh, Napoleon was the past master of second-generation warfare. He understood it, he utilized it, he was brilliant at it. And against most other second-generation counterparts, even including the Duke of Wellington, Napoleon was the superior tactician, the superior lo uh, log logistician, but sometimes the inferior strategist. And Wellington had a lot of luck on his side at Waterloo. Um, the Prussians, on the other hand, had to completely rebuild their military from the ground up because they lost so much after the peace of, um, that, that followed uh, Gina Auerstedt. Um, they had to give away so much of their territory. They, they suffered so much financial loss. They very nearly ceased to exist as an, an independent state. Now, what did they do? Well, they realized that their entire military doctrine was wrong. Um, they had multiple chains of command. They had no unified structure. They had uh, officers who were too kind of focused on doing their own little bit. They didn't think outside any kind of box. So they went right back to the drawing board, rewrote their entire way of fighting. They came up with training methods and exercises that required their officers to disobey orders in order to achieve objectives. Can you imagine that? Germans disobeying orders lawfully given by superiors to achieve an objective. That is unthinkable today, but that's the Prussian way of fighting. Uh, they concentrated instead of, in, instead of this idea of just massed artillery barrages and mindlessly sending in infantry to mop up what was left, they concentrated instead on the idea of maneuver warfare. Whereas, where, where you basically send probes into enemy uh, strong points, into, into the enemy area, you use light infantry, reconnaissance, uh, lightly armored cavalry to figure out what's going on. You use scouts, you use integrated command structures, you use uh, a great deal of individual initiative, you use lightning fast strikes, you use um, constant innovations in tactical thinking on the ground. You give local commanders great autonomy in figuring out how to fight. This is third-generation warfare, and its greatest and clearest expression was Blitzkrieg, uh, because 
the Prussians were behind the German reunification under Bismarck. By 1870, the Prussians had completely rebuilt their state and their empire, or their, their, their nation, if you will, their military. And from 1870 to about 1905, they were very much in the ascendant in the German military high command and in the German um, aristocracy. The German way of fighting in World War I was a direct reflection of these third-generation ideas, these ideas of third-generation warfare, of maneuver warfare. Uh, forget the Schlieffen plan, which was second generation to its core. It was just you know timetables and moving shit from one place to another and railroad schedules and you know, all of that. Other generals from the, uh, from the Kaiser's top brass were schooled, inculcated in this way of warfare. And the reason they couldn't really bring it to bear was because Germany didn't have the industrial capacity to fight um, multiple fronts of allies with industrialized war machines at their disposal. Uh, the, the Germans toward the end of the war were reduced to using horse-drawn wagons, whereas the British and the French and the Americans were using tanks, British and French especially. Now, the Germans learned from this, and in World War II, they began employing these blitzkrieg tactics, which were so effective. The, most people don't realize this. There's a, a superb book by, I think, Robert Doughty. It's a bit of a dry read, but it is actually very, very good. It's called The Seeds of Disaster. Uh, it's one of the seven books of the canon of fourth-generation warfare. Ro uh, Bill Lind goes into this. In that book, Mr. I think it's Robert Doughty. I could be wrong. I mean, it's, you know, I'll provide a link to the author so you can, you, know, you can correct me later if I'm wrong. Talks about how the French actually had more tanks and better tanks than the Germans did along the Maginot Line. But they couldn't use them for anything. Why? Because the Germans comprehensively outmaneuvered them by storming through the Ardennes, by, by the, through the Ardennes Mountains uh, and the mountain passes and just encircling them uh, and wiping them out piecemeal. Um, the German expression of Blitzkrieg is third-generation warfare. It is maneuver warfare. It is light and fast, individual initiative. Uh, the Germans, actually, in World War I and II, had a very dim opinion of American soldiers, except for U.S. Marines. They thought that the American soldiers were overpaid, uh, over-equipped, under-trained, and lousy fighters. Um, the Germans regarded themselves as so the, the the best trained troops on the field. Um, if you want to look to a more modern application of maneuver warfare, <clears throat> you can look at um, some of Ariel Sharon's tactics in the 1973 Yom Kippur War. And I'm pretty sure he was also responsible for some serious uh, maneuvering in Sinai uh, in 1967 in the Six-Day War. The Israelis really lapped up the idea of third-generation warfare because they needed to. They needed to be able to outfight their Arab opponents, and they learned it very well. Now, <clears throat> what happens when you move from this decentralized structure of third-generation warfare, which sends out probing tentacles everywhere, is highly trained, is highly motivated, is well-equipped, and remove the, 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 the legitimacy of the state? What happens then? You get fourth-generation warfare, which is what we're seeing on the streets today, where you're seeing individual actors, uh, well-funded, well-supported groups of people, and entire organizations fighting wars in the streets. 
these people are fighting maneuver warfare and they're fighting it on all three levels of uh, war. This is another fundamental concept of fourth generation warfare. This comes uh, from uh, John Boyd, uh, Lieutenant Colonel John Boyd, U.S. Air Force. John Boyd was a legend in the service. He is, as far as I'm aware, he's the only Air Force pilot that is really universally respected and regarded by the U.S. Marine Corps. There's a statue of him in their research facility. Uh, why is that? Why do they hold him in such high esteem? Because he is the guy responsible for teaching them uh, through their, their, the classic briefing, Patterns of Conflict, about his theories of maneuver warfare and about his theories of the OODA loop. Now, that sounds like a ridiculous nickname, but it stands for Observe, Orient, Decide, Act. The OODA loop is a decision-making cycle. John Boyd came up with this heuristic by looking at patterns of warfare, patterns of conflict, and deciding that the people who win in war are the people who outthink their opponents and outact their opponents, who get inside their opponents' decision-making cycle. Now, there are skeptics of this way of fighting, this, this theory of fighting. Uh, most pro well, one of the most prominent is certainly uh, one of my readers, actually. Uh, a certain ex-U.S. Army lieutenant colonel named Tom Kratman. Uh, sir, if you're listening to this, uh, big props to you, sir. Uh, big fan of your work. Uh, really loved your, uh, really love your Carrera series. Uh, loved reading Caliphate. Uh, loved reading State of Disobedience, which is actually the inspiration for a lot of my thinking on how things are going to fall apart. Um, can't wait for your next book in the Carrera series, and uh, I hopefully we will get a chance to to chat um, in one of these podcasts in the future. I'm very very much looking forward to that uh, possibility. So um, yeah, I mean, if you're for the for the rest of you who are listening to this, if you're wondering, yes, there are people who take my words seriously, who are a hell of a lot smarter than I am. <laughs> And uh, who actually do this stuff for a living, who actually fight for a living. You know, they know what they're talking about. Um, so when they come in and peer review me, uh, I take it on board. You know, these, these are very, very serious tacticians and strategists who, who look at this stuff. Um, Tom Kratman wrote an article called um, Indirectly Mistaken Decision Cycles. I think that's right. And he sent it to me after a, a write-up that I did about John Boyd. And I, I changed my opinion about fourth-generation warfare after I read it because a lot of the points he made are very good, which is that this OODA loop idea doesn't really hold up in practice. Nobody actually uses it. It's, it's, uh, it's a false construct. Uh, you don't really see it being used in practice. And he proposed a very different uh, way of measuring success or failure on the battlefield. He uses an acronym called MOSMOUSE, which he... Um, he explicated in his now very sadly defunct everyjoe.com columns. You can't find everyjoe.com anymore. The, f the site has been shut down. But he used to write a weekly column, and in those columns he talked about um, how strategy and tactics actually work at an operational level. That is his specialty. He is, uh, he is uh, superb at looking at the logistical aspect of war. And if you, if you read his Carrera books, you'll see exactly how a true logistician figures out how to fight a war. Um, it can be a little dry at times, but the battle sequences more than make up for it. Trust me on this. So 
I understand that there is there are reasons, good reasons, to be skeptical of this idea of decision cycles and fourth generation warfare. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Kratman himself says that fourth generation warfare is actually zero generation warfare. What that means is that you devolve into complete barbarism where there are no laws of war. Now, why is why are the laws of war important? The laws of war are not nice, they're not pleasant, but they are laws that have been universally accepted through centuries and millennia of fighting wars, which dictate how you can treat uh, enemies and how you can treat uh, neutrals, how you can treat non-combatants, and how you can treat spies. To give you one example, uh, I'll give you two examples, actually. Here's what the laws of war say about uh, besieging an enemy city. The way it works is, under the laws of war, you surround a city, you let all the women and children out, in, out through one exit, you blockade all the others, you inspect them as they go out. Any child, uh, any child, quote-unquote, under, uh, under the age of 14 is let out. Any child, quote-unquote, over the age of 14 is considered an adult male capable of fighting and is sent right back in. Anyone who tries to start any funny business gets shot right there on the spot. Women and children leave. I, I may have gotten the, the 14 barrier wrong. Um, that is a bit subjective. Um, if I if I am incorrect about that, please forgive me. Um, it may well be 16 or 18. But, you know, there is a... The point is there, there is a, a line drawn below which that age, you know, if, so, if someone looks too old, he's basically considered an enemy combatant told to get back in the city. Then, all the, the water supplies, all the food supplies into the city are shut off. You get the population to the point, whoever's left, to the point where they're eating the rats and the cats and the dogs just to stay alive. You then send in your artillery, you, you send in your artillery and your planes to flatten the place. You send in your troops to go block by block, mile by mile, and you shoot anyone who's left. That's after, at the beginning of this whole siege process, you've given the city a chance to surrender. You've given them very clear terms of peace. You've given them very clear terms of safe passage. If they reject those terms, you let the women and children out, you march in, you raise the place. These are not kind laws, but they are laws. They exist for a reason. They exist to mitigate the savagery and the terror and the brutality of war. Here's another example of the laws of war. Um, the Geneva Convention is actually more stringent than the laws of war are. The Geneva Convention says very clearly that when it comes to enemy combatants, they must clearly identify themselves. They must wear a uniform. They must have clearly clear identifying marks. They must show that they are an enemy. They are distinct from you in some way. They must be readily identifiable. If they don't do that, you can do pretty much whatever the hell you want with them. Um, you can arrest them as spies in a theater of war. And after six months, you have every legal right to shoot them as spies. So you need to understand this properly. When American forces in Iraq went in and captured um, numerous uh, Islamic fighters and brought them to Gitmo and put them in there with you know, all the food that they could eat, more or less, um, regular exercise, sanitary conditions, uh, Qurans, and, um, and, you know, plenty of, uh, entertainments. I mean, I'm not, Gitmo is not fun by any stretch of the imagination. It's a maximum security military prison. It's not a nice place to be. 
But those prisoners have been kept there alive, paid for by the U.S. taxpayer, vastly longer than they should have been. The U.S. military is going well beyond what the laws of war require in order to maintain some sort of, excuse me, some sort of moral standing. They don't need to do it. They could very easily shoot everybody and get more, and they would be legally justified in doing it. Maybe not morally justified, but legally absolutely justified by the laws of war. What happens when you get zero generation warfare? When the state level of control over violence is completely removed? You get exactly what happened in Portland the other day. You get armed gangs of violent anarchists who are backed by some very, very powerful interests going around and shooting people in the street, executing Trump supporters, executing people on the right, executing the very conservatives who said they could fight and win. There was, um, there's an article that's, that popped up on Vox Day's blog, Peace Be Unto Him, and upon my uh, friend Adam Piggott's blog. He, he took it and ran with it as well. And it was, uh, that, that article was from a, um, a soldier, actually, an, ex, uh, an ex-military chap. Let me go see if I can find it. I'm going to go to Adam's blog, and um, we're going to look at what this uh, article says, because it's, yeah, it's just Cartoon Idiots by Adam Piggott. Uh, if you haven't bought his book, Pushing Rubber Downhill, please buy his book now. Um, he's also published his second book. Uh, Run Guts, Pull Cones, and uh, his long, 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 long delayed third book is apparently um, in progress. Adam, Adam, uh, you lazy bugger, whenever you actually get it done, uh, let me know and I'll read it and review it. Uh, anyway, Adam talked about how we on the right tend to have a very cartoonish caricature of our enemies on the left. What he said was, that caricature is wrong and we've made ourselves weak by thinking it's true. Here's the reality. There was uh, a report by someone at the Survival blog who spent time carefully observing Antifa at work at the riots. Um, and he went through a number, of, uh, a number of observations. And what are the lessons that he had? There are eight lessons for patriots. Number one, the protests are organized by a central organization. Number two, they have trained and professional security teams. Number three, they actively conduct counter-surveillance. Number four, park sufficiently far enough distance away to discourage anyone following and then walk in. Number five, they are completely willing to use arms and force. Number six, the presence of body armor indicates a willingness to use violence. Number seven, blending in is far better than direct confrontation. Number eight, have a fully stocked and ready first aid kit, such as Bear FAK. Um, now, look at what uh, some decorated veterans with combat experience said about confronting these guys. But in all the training that I've been through in my life, I've never been in one where in the first five seconds of the scenario, you're blinded with a strobe light and sprayed with pepper spray. That changes everything. They were throwing these rocks from 15 feet back in the crowd. You couldn't see who the F uh, threw it, etc. Things like that. It's just a good talking point for guys that carry concealed, but you need to think through all these different scenarios. It got way worse after that video ended. They chased us for 11 city blocks. They had a convoy of about 25 vehicles that cut us off at the next intersection. They had scouts on the corner with radios. They had a drone following us. They had a bullhorn calling us Nazis. And the crowd was following a red strobe light that was up in the air on a stick. 
so they would announce Nazis and then people would follow the red strobe light. That video is just the beginning. I've got an effing fractured hand from a baton. Every one of us has black and blue bruises up and down their legs and back. I had a guy spit in my face from six inches away, call me a pussy and a coward for not doing anything about it, and then tell me that he was going to find where I live, rape my mother, rape my children in front of me, and then kill me. Holy shit. Remember, this is a guy with military training, served in the US military with military buddies, confronting Antifa and BLM in the streets. They got their asses handed to them. That's going to happen to you. I'm talking to you in American suburbia when shit goes hot and the second civil war happens, the shit hits the fan, everything falls apart and it's going to start happening in November. Mark my words, it's going to start happening starting in November. After the God Emperor wins his Trump slide, I confidently predict that he's going to be uh, re-elected. Even if he isn't, things are going to get very scary very quickly. And you need to drop this illusion that you're fighting against an unarmed, unarmored, tactically useless rabble. You are fighting against people who have mastered uh, at least some of the uh, physical and mental levels of war. The only good thing that you have going for you right now is that they have completely failed the moral level of war. What does that mean? The, the doctrine of fourth generation war says that there are three levels, like I said, physical, mental, and moral. And a higher level beats a lower level, which is to say that if you have the moral level of war on your side, if you are fighting such that you capture the moral high ground, even a weak force, physically weak force, will beat a physically strong force. That is exactly how India won its independence, for instance. The Indian protesters who chanted and, and marched and, uh, and sat, you know, in, engaged in nonviolent resistance, uh, appealed to the moral sensibilities of the British people back in England and, you know, back, back in, back in the UK. The UK is full of Christians who don't like seeing violence wrought upon peaceful people. Uh, Christians are kind of unique in this respect. Um, if you look at other cultures, they have absolutely no problem with violence being done on peaceful people. China is like that. India is like that. Uh, Japanese, eh, maybe not so much. Uh, South America is rife with that. Arabs, I mean, forget it. Um, there's no... Uh, Africans, of course, you know, pretty much basically everywhere else in the world is is different. Western Christians, Western Christian-informed nations, Christian-rooted nations, have a strong belief in the underdog, in the weaker person being morally superior. And that is, you know, that, that, that comes from the Bible itself, whether it's the story of David and Goliath, whether it's um, our Lord and King Jesus Christ telling us to turn the other cheek, all of that. You know, it's, it's in our very DNA as Westerners. But it's not in the DNA of our opponents. They don't believe in this stuff. They don't have a problem with being the aggressors. They don't have a problem with beating up uh, elderly and frail people. The rest of us watching them, however, have a huge problem with it, which is why even the Democrats running these failed cities are now beginning to realize, oh boy, we have a big problem. We can't let these people keep running riot. It's not going to look good for us. It's not looking good for us right now. It's looking really bad for us because 
holy shit, look at our poll numbers. Uh, Minnesota, the bluest of blue states, is going to swing red. Uh, New York, which is actually a deep red state, except for, um, excuse me, Albany uh, and the southeast, which is basically where Manhattan, you know, Gomorrah on the Hudson is located, and um, the the urban centers of um, of southeast or so- south New York. It's actually a very red state overall. Uh, you just have to drive into rural New York to see that. Um, these states are beginning to turn red. And they're looking uh, at... Th- that's because people are looking out their windows and seeing people looting and burning and smashing stuff and realizing, these aren't my people. These people are evil. These people are directly opposed to my way of life, my peace of mind, my safety. I don't want anything to do with them. So... BLM has failed on the moral level of war, but they're succeeding on the mental and physical level. What, then, are you going to do out there in suburbia, in the red states, in the red counties, to counter this? Okay. Number one, ranged weapons are your friend. Do not think you're going to be able to engage people at pickaxe and samurai sword range. If you do, you're going to get killed. Number two, do not think you can take these people on alone. You need to form militia groups. You need to be, get involved in your neighborhoods. You need to start training. These people who are coming for you are well-trained. They are well-equipped. They are well-funded. Do not be stupid enough, naive enough, to look at them as cartoon characters. They are not cartoons. These people are playing for keeps. They want you dead. They want your way of life destroyed. They want the West to burn. Do not mistake their platitudes and their pronouncements about how black lives matter um, for anything other than a declaration of war upon your way of life. You are a nation out there in you know, heartland America. Start bloody well acting like it. Number three. When you have formed your militia groups, do not, for the love of God, do not fire first. You must retain your moral edge. You must retain the moral high ground. You need to understand that the government in most of these cities is your enemy. You must understand that the police, the supposed enforcers of the law, are your enemy. Which means that you must have an extremely strong moral case to make before you open fire. If you look at the hero Kyle Rittenhouse and his case, and I mentioned him right at the beginning of the podcast, and it's kind of fitting that I close with his case. Initially, he was branded a white supremacist and a man, he's actually a 17-year-old boy, um, who cold-bloodedly gunned down three peaceful protesters. That's bullshit. All you have to do is watch the video. This kid was there to safeguard property and safeguard people's businesses. He was attacked uh, violently. He was uh, assaulted. He was running for his life from someone intent on possibly hitting him with a Molotov cocktail. He turned and fired at his first attacker and killed him. You look at that first attacker's rap sheet. This guy was a, a pedophile. He's a child molester. Uh, he was, he was, the video that you can see, he's right up in people's faces and he's basically telling them, telling them to F and shoot me. Um, this guy is, he was seriously disturbed, deranged. Uh, and what you're looking at is a young man forced to defend himself and in the process gunning down 
literal Luciferians, people in service to Satan, in service to Lucifer. That is not a crazy or violent anarchist. That's a hero. Then you 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 watch further and uh, you see he's getting chased again. You know, kid's in full body armor. He's got his rifle with him. He's getting chased by somebody intent on bashing his head in with a skateboard. He's He trips, he falls, he gets hit a few times. He gets, the, the guy with the skateboard swings, connects with him at least once. So he fires from basically point blank range and, you know, riddles him with like five or six bullet holes. Guy's killed right there. The third attacker comes up with a gun in his hand. You can see the gun in his hand. And he's about ready to uh, shoot Kyle in the face. And Kyle shoots him in the arm, nearly blows his arm off. And you know what the guy with the handgun said? You can see the handgun. It's in the video. It's in the photos. It's right there. The guy with the handgun says, I wish I had blown that kid's brains out, is what he said. And this guy has a criminal rap sheet as well, apparently. These are the people you're up against. The media machine painted Kyle Rittenhouse as a mass murderer, as a a mass shooter. Despite the fact that after he did these things, he called up the police and told them, apparently he told them, either he called up a friend or he called up the police, and he told somebody, which is what you're supposed to do, by the way, according to the law, that's what you do, and told them, I've just shot someone. And then when the police started pouring in after the the, the third guy was uh, shot, uh, the second guy was shot and killed, the third guy was shot, he walks up to the police with his hands in the air and tries to surrender to them. And they ignore him completely. They just ignore him. They, they, they go straight for the, the people on the ground. And now he's being charged with murder, with premeditated murder. And they may well seek the death penalty for him, or at least life imprisonment. How does this make sense? This kid defended himself, defended his country, or at least his, his, his people, not his country. Uh, he drove across state lines, and the only thing that the police can actually uh, nick him for is the fact that he drove across state lines after committing a shooting, which was blatantly in self-defense. The New York effing Times, the New York Slimes itself, said in its, in its timeline of events, this was self-defense. That is the level of the moral war that you're fighting. Everything is against you. So for God's sake, don't shoot first. Because if you do, your entire moral foundation for your coming victory is gone. You must show restraint. But when the time comes, unleash hell. I think it's uh, probably about time to wrap up. Uh, Gone on for about an hour now. Uh, This, uh, I know, is not exactly one of the most uplifting podcasts I've ever done, but I think it was necessary to go through in detail a lot of these things and to explain why um, so much of what we are told about the forces of the regressive left is wrong and why it's necessary to inform ourselves and to keep ourselves ready for what is coming. So uh, please, my friends, be careful. Please stay safe. Please, for the love of God, do not fire first when it comes time for the inevitable confrontation. Uh, And please look after yourselves, look after your families, take care of your communities, join a militia group, gun up, Get ready, because things are going to go down in a very, very scary way, uh, come November 4th and even beyond. This has been Didactic Mind, episode 45.
from 4GW to 0GW. And I am Didact, signing off.